there are conversations online that will open your eyes in such a different way. And to not realize that means robbing yourself of personal and professional growth. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. Today's guest is Don Dizon, a renowned oncologist specializing in women's cancers and affiliated with a handful of top medical institutions. Don and I met in 2017 when we were both speaking at a patient experience conference held in Barcelona. Like discovering a lost sibling, we were joined at the hip the entire conference and have been friends ever since. This conversation is full of fascinating twists and turns. We discussed how Don created a balance between his beautiful family and a prestigious career, why he believes all medical professionals should be embracing social media, and of course, Don shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. Our interview was scheduled for the day of a crazy snowstorm storm. So Don, stuck at home, ended up calling from his home office, which means you might hear a bit of that family jostling around in the background. As far as I'm concerned, it made our conversation that much more relatable. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, Don, thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate your uh, your time today. I know you're a busy person. No problem. Now, do you go by Dr. Don? No, I... Because I wanted to... S- <laughs> I don't go by Dr. Don. You can just call me Don or you can call me Dr. Right. Don. However for, formal or informal you want to be is fine. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just, it's funny because like for a moment, my brain wanted to say Dr. Don, even though I've never called you that ever, but it it just felt like it would have been the right thing. I was like, no, probably not. So uh, instead of me trying to go over the variety of titles and roles that you, and hats that you wear, can you go over for us just to get started? What are the various titles you have? What are your positions? What do you do? Happy to. Um, I am an academic medical oncologist with interests um, predominantly in women's cancers, but also uh, the care for patients after treatments for cancer, especially as it relates to sexual health. And all of this um, goes into my titles. Uh, So first and foremost, I am a uh, professor of medicine at Brown University um, within uh, the Lifespan Cancer Institute, which is a uh, three-hospital system uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, I serve as director of women's cancers. And then at the major academic hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, which is Rhode Island Hospital, I serve as the director for medical oncology. So that is what I consider my day job. No. <laughs> That's uh, and, and your other day job is what I just heard in the background. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which, how, how old are they running around? <laughs> yeah, my twins are 10. So if you can try to um, cut them out of the podcast, that'd be good. No, <laughs> why would I cut that out? That was wonderful. I, what I love about what just happened, which was a total accident, is that you just went through all this incredibly like, you know, heavy, heavy <laughs> real, serious stuff. And then, woo! It was just kind of in the background, Ugh. which is just, which I, 
you know what? I had no intention of going here at all, but since that just happened, (laughs) let me just jump right there and we'll come back to the stuff I normally start with, which is, you know, how has this career and, 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 you know, you're a part of these prestigious universities, you travel, we're going to get into that. Mm -hmm. You're, you're constantly giving speeches and stuff. How does, how do you navigate that with your, your amazing family? Well, I think for, those of us who do what what we do, and we actually you know, do a lot of talks, but from very different perspectives. And mm-hmm. one of the things that has come into the forefront of Amer- uh, medicine in America is this whole concept of work-life balance. Now, I trained in an era, and I'm dating myself, but in an era where you know you, you trained as an oncologist and you lived the life of an oncologist. And for those of us who are in academic medicine, it meant going where the next best thing was. So it was not atypical for my mentors, the folks I looked up to within this field, to, to move from coast to coast, uh, city to city, uh, and their family would just pack. And I always wondered how their families did all of that. Um, we've gone from that point to where I am practicing now, which is really based on what's best for my family. Um, so I have personally gone uh, through multiple institutions, um, but I've also been fortunate because even though I've traveled from New York City to um, Providence, Rhode Island, then I took a job in Waltham, Massachusetts, and then I took a job in Boston, and then I ended up in Providence, Rhode Island again, I've never moved. And I think that a critical point in all of that was my children didn't have to uproot and go to a different city, and we didn't have to start over. That meant family, which was in the area, um, remained available for us. And I think, you know, Hillary Clinton said, you know, it takes a village to raise a family. And certainly my partner, who is for the most part uh, primary caretaker of the children, has a family around here and that's made it possible. And But without that kind of support, I don't think it would have been successful. And sometimes I still wonder if it could be more successful, but you know, I think there are, there are things that we do um, and we try to balance that it's going to be worthwhile um, ultimately. And I think that's where my partner and I have come down to. Yeah. And I'm wondering to what extent has the technology of the day actually made what you do um, easier Mm -hmm. and, and more accessible to to maintain that kind of family life while being on the road. At least for me, you know, I, my age kind of betrays the amount of years I've been in the field. I've been a full-time entertainer, now a speaker for almost, I'm going on 15 years. And in the earlier days, the first half of it for me, you know, being on the road meant I didn't maintain friends. I couldn't maintain Mm -hmm. relationships. I was gone. And now the social media with all of its negative stuff has made that you know, to be able to have real-time face-to-face conversations right. with my wife, with my friends, with my brother, my sister, while I'm, you know, in Africa or in like somewhere rant, you know, like it's amazing. How, how has that? Have you found that that's been part of the reason you've been able to do it? Well, you know, that that's interesting. It's it certainly does help. I mean, I think I make it a point to uh, at least I I try very hard to do um, touch bases with the family at least once a day if I am traveling, uh, whether that be nationally or internationally, uh, through FaceTime. But I grew up on the island of Guam, which is in the South Pacific, as you know, and I still have friends on the island and I still have family on the island. So 
social media has been a huge lifeline to maintain connections that, you know, as we, you go grow older, um, these connections fade into memory. But I find that yeah. with technology, um, I'm able to actually touch bases and stay stay in touch with folks, even though if we're not talking every day, but I'm seeing glimpses into their lives and they're, they're seeing glimpses into mine. And, and, and we remain, it makes me feel like there's a real connection there, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's a different sort of connection, Correct. but I, I feel like, and I don't know how you feel. I feel like it's, it's not a substitute Mm-mm. for the, the real thing, the in-person, even if you're sitting on a couch across the room from somebody and you're not talking, that's such a different level Correct. than having even a Skype call. But having said that, if you do have to be away, it is an amazing way uh, to stay connected. And I, I wanted to, to kind of on that note, when we met the, the, the talk, the talk that you were giving, uh, in, in Barcelona, yeah. and we'll have to talk about that <laughs> conference. Cause that was some conference, wasn't it? it? Yeah, uh, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> when you were there, you were talking a lot about the integration of, of technology and social media with the medical field. Do you talk about that a lot? I do actually. Um, one of the, you know, I, I think the use of social media professionally was something that I kind of stumbled upon. Uh, you know, the, the person that we'll talk about got me farther involved with our professional society. For, and for me, that's the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. And after being involved with that group for, for uh, some years, I was asked to head a committee for them called uh, Integrated Media and Technology. And met some people. They were on Twitter. I decided to join Twitter on a whim. And, you know, years later, I'm sort of recognized as a key opinion leader when it comes to social media and engagement. Um, And certainly, I write a lot um, from the personal perspective of being a physician. And that's sort of given me a wider audience and reach um, nationally as Mm -hmm. well as internationally. But I do. uh, There's this... um, uh, entity in the National Cancer Institute called the National Clinical Trials Network or the NCTN. And one of the members of this network is called SWOG Cancer Research Network. And I am their chair for um, digital engagement. So I found myself um, not only being immersed in the social media world, but finding a foothold where I can actually um, try to encourage other professionals to engage online and to engage with patients and to not only listen into conversations, but actually be a part of them. So that was actually going to be my question yeah. is to, to what extent is your, the social media work that you're doing to connect professionals mm-hmm. with their colleagues versus uh, to actually connect with the patients themselves? Well, so I think that's the really interesting thing about uh, social media networks that are open to the public. So I'm talking about, um, you know, Twitter and Instagram, unless you make your, um, your posts private, everyone can see it. So for example, um, I, I tend to use Twitter a lot professionally around the time of, um, uh, national conferences just to keep up on what's being discussed on the latest research on what people's perspectives are on that research. But, um, so are a lot of other people without an MD to their name, hmm. you know, so as much as I might like what my colleague in um, Alberta, Canada has just posted, and I may comment on that, I am very well aware 
that folks with an interest in that cancer are also looking at the same tweets. And sometimes I get into conversations with folks who are not physicians. And I think those are some of the most um, formative conversations I have because it, it allows me to step outside of this sort of a, you know, the um, high tower of academia and actually yeah. look at a, look at a trial result from a, from an incredibly different perspective, which we didn't get before the use of social media. Right. Because you would have had to ask people in a more formal way, ask patients in a kind of a clinical setting to go down a list of questions probably, right? Correct. Versus when they go on Twitter, they're just like, here's what I'm thinking. Well, right. But Brian, it's not even that. It's like usually, you know, the patients that are the the family members or even the caregivers who are interested in the disease I was treating and my recommendations weren't there because of just curiosity. There was a there was a sense of urgency that this was needed to be something actionable. So put in that perspective, I was able to give people my opinion and not get challenged. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So now with social media, you're seeing the same information, but people are approaching it from perspectives that are very different from mine. So you find that you're actually being challenged more often or your ideas now are... Do you feel like you're being challenged more often? Yes, I, I, but challenge it almost means adversarial. You know, yeah. I might look at a result and think that's a really great result. But, you know, viewed from the lens of a, a patient who's gone through that is like, well, did you consider these factors when you said it was so important? And I mm. may not have. And, and that speaks to the actual topic of the conference that we met at, yeah. which is patient experience, mm-hmm. right? And Correct. And what I didn't realize when I did the uh, when I did that conference, and that conference was um, for Tiva. Is it pronounced Tiva? I think so. Sort of like sandal. Yeah, yeah, t- yeah. T e v a Tiva Pharmaceuticals, <laughs> uh, who who are you know a, a giant of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and right. they were having their third patient experience conference, and I had never heard of such a thing. Yeah, I didn't know what that. Uh, I didn't know what that was, and as I a didn't know what that was, former, <laughs> yeah, well, I did. You know, I was a. I'm a former magician turned, you know, kind of inspirational speaker, speaker right? around the topic exactly. of human connection, and so I speak to all kinds of weird events, and I mean, not weird, but like to me, the fact that they want me there <laughs> right, is weird, right? Right, right? And you know, like the Utah Correctional Association is the one I always go right. to as my like example of I. How did they find me, and why did they call me? Right. Why did I keynote their conference? But Ever since then, I've been invited to speak at a whole bunch of patient experience conferences mm-hmm. to the point where me and my team are starting to go, should we be marketing my work to patient experience conferences? Because I keep they keep finding me. And so are you seeing this ex, this explosion of that 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 term patient experience, the focus on the shift from the focus on your end of things as the medical professionals to how the patients are taking it, how they're uh, absorbing it? it yes, I, I think that is happening. Now, we don't tend to um, think of uh, the term patient experience uh, sort of when it comes to uh, novel therapies. But what we do think about is this term patient engagement. Sort of, mm. I want you to help me make decisions that are going to be best for you. You know, tell me about your goals, tell me about what you prefer. What are the things you want to accomplish? What are the things you would never give up on? 
you know, those are as important to me as the options I might be able to tell you. But in terms of what I do um, administratively in my hospital, it's all about patient experience, exactly what you're talking about. I want to know what you think of the institution. Are, are people nice to you when you walk in? Do you have to wait a long time? You know, those kinds of things are, are very important. And you get both, I think, on the social media realm. Yeah. And what I go around the country actually telling my colleagues and administrators is these conversations about both the experience and novel therapeutics, the perspectives you're looking for are found online because online are communities that are gathered around exactly what you're looking at, but they're not going to look for you to give you their opinion. They're going to have their own conversation. Now you can either be aware of it and try to listen and join, or you can remain blind to it, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it's a fascinating world we're living in right now. <laughs> On that note, let's let's get into the the kind of the meat of the whole you know the whole point of the show, which is chance encounters yeah. and lasting impact. Do you have a story of someone? Yeah, you, you're smiling already. <laughs> Go for it. You just tell me. <laughs> well, it, it actually ties into uh, the the favorite piece I wrote in, in a very roundabout way. But um, you know, having committed to an academic career, one of the hardest things I ran into was trying to get more involved on a national level. And for, for several years, I tried to get involved with um, ASCO, which is, again, our national organization for uh, oncology. Um, and, you know, you do this by submitting your name for consideration for uh, committee assignment or um, other opportunities. And each year I wouldn't get it. Um, and it, it, when came to the point where I told myself that I wasn't going to travel to our national meeting unless I had something to do. The year I decided to do that, I had been publishing, I had started to um, publish a small column for, for a trade um, paper. And they had asked me maybe a year before this to, to sort of write uh, a blog about clinical medicine, which, you know, very wide latitude, whatever topics you want. So I was writing maybe once every six, eight weeks. And um, then comes this to the uh, national meeting in Chicago, and I'm on a bus to go from the hotel to the conference center. And sitting uh, across from me um, was a woman. Her name was Lisa. Her name is Lisa Greaves. And I didn't know her at all. Um, but we struck up a conversation and, you know, it was just, what do you think of the national meeting? I'm like, oh, I'm having a great time, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, are you so-and-so? And I was like, yes. Uh. And she's like, oh, that's so interesting because I've read your column before. And I was like, oh, that's, that's very nice. You know, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, that's great. And she was just like, you know, we're trying to do something at ASCO. And I was like, oh, well, you know, if I can help, let me know, blah, blah, blah. And that one opportunity led me to my column for the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which I've been publishing now since 2011. And I've tried to wow. publish every, I've tried to do two columns every month since then. Um, wow. But it led to this wider opening of doors for me in medical um, 
creative writing is what I'll say. And it led me to develop a voice. And that voice was really, you know, it wasn't about just being a specialist in women's cancers. It was more about, I had an experience about others have had this too. Let me write about what I thought of it, that experience. And it started to resonate with folks and it led to opportunities far beyond ASCO. So I am, you know, I write this column or I edit now this column on narratives in oncology for the journal, The Oncologist. And to introduce it, um, I picked up an, an old column I'd written for ASCO and I sort of rewrote it um, and it was published. And that is my favorite piece because it was um, the story of um, when my dad died and how being an oncologist, delivering bad news, and being with someone dying of cancer um, helped me help my dad when he died. And, and sort of that experience, and the fact that it's part of the medical literature, um, and it's, it's, uh, it was such a personal experience for me, um, I felt it gave me closure um, for that experience, but it, it's also a letter of love that I'd written for my dad and my mom um, that will live on. Yeah. So it was all because of Lisa and sitting on that bus, which, you know, and her telling me more about ASCO and just being that voice for me to come in and do many of the things for the organization. But it was that sort of the handshake I needed um, to find a footing in this in this this very big organization with like I think it's like more than eighty thousand members. The amount of dots that had to connect that you can never see forward, right? right. You can only connect dots right. looking back, and and every time I hear a story like that, I find an, every time someone else comes on the show and tells me a story like that. Mm-hmm. I find another one in my own life that I didn't even realize before where I go, oh man, that never would have been if not for this, 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 you know. Um, That's it. It's like, I, you know, every single yeah. thing that I've been able to do with um, with ASCO and on a national level, I could almost sincerely trace back to this one chance encounter on a bus. And it, it you know, gives me two feelings. On the one hand, I was incredibly lucky that Lisa was on that bus when she was. But on the other hand, it it's kind of, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, frustrating maybe, that sometimes it does take those chance encounters to, to, to identify something special about that person. That, that, yeah, the frustrating part is that you can be incredibly talented and you can be incredibly motivated and you can be, uh, you know, incredibly driven. And until something absolutely random happens, it doesn't get a chance to flourish, right? Yes. Uh, that that you don't, just because you're talented and intelligent and motivated doesn't mean you're going to succeed in the grand, like capital S, you know, success, right. which is something I talk to students. I spend a lot, like half of my life uh, doing kind of inspirational speaking for for college students. And I tell them all that same thing. I'm like, listen, talent, motivation, intelligence, not as valuable as they used to be. Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. not in the world, not in this world where we turned everything into the neighborhood, right? Where 
there is just so many people and so many things and everybody is talented. Everybody's talented. Now everyone you look, yeah, you know, and so I, I'm constantly telling students the way you're going to get to success, like whatever that means for you, which is different for every person is by weaving a network of people who trust you by, um, by connecting with others, by being open mm-hmm. because you were on that bus, but I, I'm willing to bet if you had been in a particularly bad mood that day or been drowning out the world with headphones right. on or whatever, <laughs> someone wouldn't have said hi. She never would have said hi. No, and that's the thing. It's like, how many times have I yeah. not had those kind of encounters? Because on planes, I will put my right. headphones on and I will tune everything yeah. out and I don't want to talk yeah. to you. <laughs> Just and, and, I, and I do it. I do it too. And I think it's, it's valid. I think there's days where we all are dealing with stuff and we need to go into ourselves and tune out the world. Right. But as often as I can, I try not to because I've had those encounters and everyone I talked, every successful person I talked to, mm-hmm. every happy person I talked to right. um, has had an encounter like that because they're open. Speaking of being open and present, we actually we met. I had I we met at the airport in Barcelona, getting at- picked up by the organization that had brought us both into. Speech. That's correct. And one of us, and- one of us lost our luggage. <laughs> oh man, I forgot that was that trip. Yeah. Okay. So my luggage never made it the entire That's trip. Right. That was. I remember that. That was. Yeah, I was really, I was on edge. I was really on edge when we met because I had just flown from, you know, from, from the States and I had this, I was giving the opening keynote. And for me, I always feel this tremendous pressure when I'm brought into an, you know, uh, an organization that's in a field that has nothing to do with magic, right? right? Which is, I never speak to my own field. And (laughs) You know, I come in and they're like, kick off our annual conference. We've in, we've hand invited 150 of the best people in this industry from all over the world. And we want you to kick off the conference right. as a magician, you know? And so I always had this pressure. And then I got all the way there and my bag didn't show up. <laughs> and I was just like, this is not happening. Yeah, I was like, that, you know, that is insane. Um, I mean, that, that you're bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And what's funny is that I keep a totally side note for anybody who travels, I'll have to put a link in the show notes to this. Uh, I don't have any association with this company. I'm not going to get a commission if you go buy it, but I, I have this, uh, basically a GPS. It's not really GPS, but it's a tracking device that I put that I pay for an annual subscription that goes in my bags and I can find it before the airline does because of that. And so I knew where the bag was. That's amazing. I got to go up to the counter and tell them, here's where it is. Now, how can you get it to me? And uh, they said, we can't get it to you by your thing tomorrow. And I said, then leave it. It stayed in Connecticut. It stayed at my home airport 20 minutes from my house. Oh my God, really? It just never got on the plane. (laughs) And so I said, I said, then leave it. If you try to get it here, I'm going back in 48 hours. I'll, it'll, it will be. So they said, we'll leave it in Connecticut. I swear to you, it stayed there. I watched the tracking. It stayed in Connecticut. And on the, my layover on the way home, at my layover, I look at my phone. It's on its way to Barcelona. Oh, you're kidding. It's passing me on my way home. Oh, so then it took God. another three days after I got home to get it back to my house. See? From It was the whole crazy. But, but. Can I just say, we, can I just say yeah. that you are so stressed. <laughs> I could not tell at all. <laughs> I just couldn't tell. Well, that's part of the job, isn't it? Is that, but anyway, so. We met, basically, we started talking in the backseat of, I don't know, a, basically a limo yeah, or some driver that they sent to pick like, us up. like one of those black cars. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think the first thing we bonded over was I think I just leaned into you or maybe you to me, I can't remember, but I, I think I remember saying like, like, is this a real thing that we're going to? <laughs> like the whole booking process had been just kind of shrouded in mystery and I wasn't convinced that we were going to an actual event. <laughs> Well, it was, it was so, I obviously wasn't there to talk about science. I wasn't actually there to talk about anything that I do that I, if it would directly with patients, it was all about connectedness on social media. And I was just like, how on earth did you find me to get yeah. this conference? Yeah. And they're like, and, oh, you read your it, blog. You have a very big presence. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. All right. They found me because of my TEDx talk yeah. and thought he's the guy to kick off our <laughs> invitation only annual oncology conference for patient experience, you know, and it was like, so it turned out that conference was amazing. It was, I loved it. Was it was incredible. It really was. And it was, you know, the, the audience was very engaged. Um, oh, yeah. But it was, I don't know if you rem you were there for this. At one point, um, we talked about social media. I think it was after... I think it was before I gave my own talk on the topic and they opened up a booth. They were said, you know, they were like, if anybody would be interested in, in joining Twitter, we're going to have someone outside who can talk you through the process. There was huh. nobody who showed up. Oh no. Yeah, no one, no one showed up. Were they already all on Twitter? No, no. It was very much <laughs> what I see here. It's sort of like maybe 15% were on Twitter the other 80% were not and 5% signed up and never used it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was very interesting. Wow. And it just brought home the point that, you know, if, if I'm going to try to get folks to actually do this, there, there has to be a value to it. And we're still struggling really to try to define the value. You know, it, in, a, in a world where you have 15 minutes to see your patients and you're doing your notes on a computer anyway, and it's, you know, you're not finishing your clinic till the next day at 8 a.m., why are you going to spend more time on social media rather than, yeah. you know, do X, Y, and Z, like spend time with your family? And so that's what right. we're up against, really. It's just this crunch of time and folks feeling completely overwhelmed. So I've just, you know, over the years, I've, I've at different times chosen different social out social media outlets. Mm -hmm. But right now my focus is on this podcast and my weekly blog. A couple of years ago, I was focused on my YouTube channel and Instagram. Like I can't, you just can't, you have to pick a thing sometimes. There's just too much noise. Right. And I think you, and it's, it's sort of the, the balancing act. I think when you're talking to folks about social media, it's such a nebulous concept, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I use an example from my own life. I use Facebook personally. I use Twitter professionally. And, right. you know, that's where those are the media. And then they mix actually on Instagram because I want, mm -hmm. I, I like that. I like, it, you know, I like taking photographs and pictures and all this kind of stuff and showing people travel that I'm doing. But, you know, honestly, that's the one place where they both merge and it's because I don't have any time to do much in the way of, of text or, you know, adding any, any words yeah. to a snapshot. So people can read into a snapshot, anything they want on Twitter. I am messaging and that's to me that that's where it is, but you're right. You know, I think to do a blog weekly is actually pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do a week. I do. I do a weekly blog. And so it's, 
not only I'm thinking about probably three to five hours a day in between other things, thinking about the blog, yeah. and then I have to write them and edit them. And then because on my website, they need thumbnail photos and formatting. Yeah. And that is different from the email that goes out with that week's blog is for, has to be formatted differently for the email because yeah. that were, and then if I want to promote that on LinkedIn, LinkedIn needs a different format. So I, I can spend 10 hours for a single 500 word blog post. Yeah. You know, and, and and I do it every week, and I run a podcast, and I run a YouTube channel, and I also sp- I do the thing I actually get paid to do, right. which is like is starting to get lost in all the other stuff. It's like, well, wait a second. There's a thing I'm actually getting paid to do that I'm giving the least amount of my time to now. Right. I'm spending all of my time on social media, and and so I think to kind of close out this this conversation, which has gone in. It went in like three or four different ways I never expected. And we're so much more enjoyable than I think probably what I, I had we were, I thought we were talking for like 10 minutes. I'm so surprised <laughs> already. No, but you're right. I mean, I think if you let it get to you, then there will be all the things about posting and none of the experiencing in real life. Yeah. You know, and as much as possible, I try to be, I try to do social media when there's nothing else in front of me that requires my attention. So if, if you could cap this for anybody in the medical field who's listening and you could tell them, you know, you, you have kind of elevator speech to say, here's why you need to be engaging in social media. Leave, a, leave them with something. What is it? There are conversations online that will open your eyes in such a different way. And to not realize that means robbing yourself of personal and professional growth. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. We're going to end there. Dr. John. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Hopefully we will see each other in the airport or otherwise. Before you flip on your favorite medical show, mine are Scrubs and House, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, Everything in life comes down to priorities. Don chose to make family his priority, and therefore all professional decisions were made in service of that. Don is the proof that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Second, what good are your beliefs if they never get challenged? In an age of increasingly powerful filters, it's really important to get involved in conversations with people who might not agree with you. Remember, the goal of connection is understanding, not agreement. And finally, when it comes to social media, the goal is not to post. The goal is to experience the real world and simply let your social media reflect those experiences. Links to Don's blog, as discussed in this episode, are in the show notes on onenewperson.com, along with his social handles for Twitter and Instagram, which are at Dr. Don S. Dizon, D-R-D-O-N-S-D-I-Z-O-N, or just go to the show notes. OneNewPerson.com is also where you can sign up to be on the inside of the podcast, receive notifications every time a new episode drops, and get bonuses like full uncut conversations with my most, let's say, wild guests. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.